Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Mark Binger. Mark is heavily involved with innovation and how to bring innovation into companies. Uh, So we had a very far-ranging discussion today about science and what it means to innovate and all of these things that I get really, really excited about. So I think you're going to really enjoy this this interview, particularly if you have a bent for science. Um, I learned some new biology terms in this, uh, and I'm always looking for new kind of concepts, abstract concepts to wrap my head around. I have no idea why that is, but I'm really, I really love doing it. And I imagine that if you're still listening to this show, you probably do too. Um, so enjoy. And if you do enjoy, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or any of the other podcast platforms. And as always, I'm available on Twitter. My DMs are open. You can go ahead and send me a message, um, and I would love to hear what you got out of this show or what you got out of any of the other shows, um, and i just love to hear what you think, how I can do better, and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Mark Binger. He works with innovation and technology at Innovation Labs, uh, and I'm really, really excited to have you on the show and, and kind of get into your, your wisdom on innovation and technology. Welcome to the show, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Yeah. So what does innovation mean to you? Um, you know, that that's one of those things that uh, almost every single meeting starts with. Uh, and it's because you can have so many you know different definitions of it. I mean, it just, uh, you know, uh, the etymology basically just makes means making new things. Um, but, uh, you know, people want to sort of imbue that with a lot of special meaning and significance and sort of, is it creating value or not? Um, but I don't know. I guess it's like the the old, you know, the senator's definition of porn. You know, when you see it. <laughs> what is some innovation that? What is the coolest innovation or the most important or impactful innovation that you've seen in the last week or two weeks? The last week or two weeks. Hmm. Um, you know, I have been I've been following the sort of flying car slash eVTOL space um, for a long time, really, since it was just sort of a, a nascent bad idea. And, um, you know, the uh, the naysayers and the skeptics have, have kind of doubted it every step along the way that you couldn't have single passenger drones. You, said you couldn't have, you couldn't make electric uh, aircraft work. You couldn't get the regulatory things to work together. There'd be no business model. And, you know, in the space of about three years, every one of those impossible things has been overcome. So it's still way too early to even guess what the impact of flying cars would be. But, um, you know, I don't think, I don't know, we've been dreaming of flying cars for a century. And now that they're sort of right about here, I think it's, uh, it's, it's good to just, you know, praise the stubborn, inventive people who can take something like that, you know, uh, from, uh, from idea to reality in such a short time. So, uh, so there's two ways that I would love to go with this. I feel like you'd be a really good person to talk to both of these. Uh, there's the stubbornness and there's the, the kind of like for people who are creating something new, it's just like a given that you're going to do it for many, many years and everybody's going to say you're stupid and mm-hmm. kind of push back at you and say that's worthless. Even the people, other people who are doing innovation and stuff like that. Um, uh-huh. and then there's the other, the other total orthogonal thing, which is, uh, we've got this innovation, rising innovation, rising technology, flying cars, if they were to truly come, they would revolutionize our, our transportation system in a way that might be very, very helpful. Maybe there would be mm-hmm. unintended con- conflicts as well. But 
Um, uh, but yeah. and so for me, I see this kind of race towards technology that's happening. And also I see a political contraction and a rise towards nationalism and this kind of shrinking mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I, yeah. for me, it feels like we need to get this stuff out there as soon as possible um, uh, in order to, 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 because I, I also see that as soon as the political correction contraction happens, I also see a slowdown in science and innovation and money towards that. But maybe that's yeah. wrong. Maybe, maybe we need a cold war. Maybe we need something like that in order to, to, to have that kind oh. of competitive nature, bring science back into uh-huh. the war. What do you think of any of that stuff? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, well, let me take the stubborn people first and then maybe the, the political stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I so I work with a lot of, of companies and and I don't work with a lot of companies because you know you meet groups where their idea of like an innovation process is, you know, some afternoons in a conference room with post-it notes and you know and and uh coming up with, you know, what for them are really like radical new ideas and I I can barely stand to be in those types of <laughs> meetings. Um, you know, I think like if you're not getting thrown in jail, if you're not losing a finger, if you are not like losing, you know, if people don't basically say what you're doing is illegal or immoral or at least highly, highly questionable and ideally impossible, then you're really not pressing your own boundaries. And you're, you also can't com- expect to be compared to the people who are doing those things. And so, you know, if you go to, if you look at, again, almost any type of really important innovation that we're looking at right now, whether that's stem cells or quantum computers or flying cars or, you know, any number of other things, um, the vast majority of people think that's a complete waste of your time. And a lot of people that have money think it's a waste of money or, not a, you know, not, not going to pay off in a time frame that works for them. So that's fine. I mean, you're entitled to, you know, be sort of risk averse and conservative. Just don't call yourself an innovator. Just call yourself a, a follower or whatever the word is. Um, the people that are doing those things are a blast to hang out with. And I think once you, you know, get used to doing that, it's really tough to go back to the post-it notes. Uh, it's a really good kind of thing that I just got out of that was you can't have your cake and eat it too in terms of innovation. You can't have both innovation and risk aversion. Um, and it sounds like a lot of people kind of grab onto that innovation and make it a church or make it a, a God or make it a religion. Uh, and they say, yeah, I got that. I got that. But uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to take any risks though. So, yeah. 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 They think, well, like about creative thinking and again, you can, you can do sort of garden variety innovation, I guess, but you're really not going to, um, change the world with your, uh, you know, weekend hackathon, um, around some fairly mundane problem. Mm. And a lot of people, you know, sort of get motivated by the fact that they could be doing that. But I think it's a little bit like when you read, I don't know, a mountain climbing magazine instead of actually going out and climbing a mountain. Mm. That's cool. So let's move to the, the uh, kind of political nature of where we're heading. Mm. What, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think it's a mirage or do you think it's actually happening that we're going to start to see some major political um, conflict with science? You know, I, um, I, I, I think there's an ebb and flow in American politics and politics in general. And we happen to be in, you know, remember when George Bush was president and we thought that was the end of the world. And now we're like, wow, that would, I'd love to see that guy back. Um, (laughs) so I, I, you know, I, the, the, 
optimist in me hopes that this is just a little bit of a temporary glitch. I mean, Brexit and, and uh, uh, the Trump election, I think we're both because it seems so impossible that that would actually happen. And I think a lot of people stayed home. And, and if you look at sort of the, the general support for where things are going, they're, they're pretty low by historical standards. So, you know, I, I have high hopes that things will swing back. But that said, uh, if the you know, U.S. and British and other voters who are choosing these policies, um, you know, prevail in, in the near future, uh, I, I think, you know, China in particular and a few other economies will just be living crap out of <laughs> out of those those countries. I mean, I think the the progress that China is making in AI and robotics and, and you know the technologies that we're aware of and that people talk about a lot is even then it's so much farther than most Americans um, are aware of. And I say this having you know spent a week in China this summer and and that was very very instructive. Uh, but, you know, being a, uh, very much an amateur sinologist, um, I, I don't claim to know everything, but I do know enough to say that we're toast if we don't get our act together. And maybe even we were too late. We should have done that 30 years ago and had more science and education in schools. But um, then there are other things that is that kind of shock me and scare me a little bit that nobody seems to know about um, with regard to China. And in particular, there's a program they have called the Belt and Road. Uh, project, which is um, essentially building a new Silk Road from China all the way to Europe. Uh, so think, you know, high-speed rail, electric, you know, electric grid, all kinds of infrastructure um, on, on land. And then the belt is doing the same thing, but uh, by sea. So basically building ports in, you know, in cities all the way around the, uh, Asia and Africa and um, making, again, <clears throat> a, a pretty clear shot to get goods um, from China to Europe and, and maybe back and every place in between. And even like people who are policymakers in the United States that should know about this, I think have shockingly little awareness of it and certainly not talked about, but geopolitically, I think it's, you know, roughly the equivalent of the, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and the fall of the Berlin wall. And nobody here is even aware that it's, you know, this multi-trillion dollar project is already underway and, and it's going to be upon us in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. For me, it reminds me of what happened at the end of World War II when I think it was FDR was negotiating with the British about something. And then Britain ended up selling us all of their, selling the United States, all of their um, naval bases all around the world, which allowed the United States to establish global dominance in terms of shipping, in terms mm -hmm. of uh military, uh, navy, and, and all of these different things. And then China is essentially building their own version of that right now. The United States still has all of those bases. So, um, and it, it's so interesting because like, I'd love to get your, your opinion on this. If there is a war, if there is conflict, what will that war look like? What will the nature of combat look like when we have AI, um, uh, AI, uh, asymmetric artificial intelligence types of battles, but then also the nature yeah. of the military technology is also changing. So we're also going to start to see drones that are, you know, I, I see swarm drones and, and kind of autonomous drones battling it out against each other mm -hmm. with maybe very little human involvement. What, what's your vision for what a conflict yeah. would look like? 
Well, I mean, to be honest, I, I think the risk of armed conflict is, is pretty low um, mm. because, and I, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but the, I think this is much, much, much more about economic uh, influence and um, you know it would be certainly morally unjustified and probably militarily uh, stupid to um, to you know undertake a, a war like that nobody's nobody's asking for that mm. um, and you know most of the sort of military disputes that do happen are, are relatively small they're you know around little islands here and there um, if there is a military conflict I think it would be more about Hong Kong or Taiwan um, and that you know, that's, th those are just really tough things for anybody to call. I certainly wouldn't hazard a guess on those things. So I mean much more in the sense of just economic influence. And, um, you know, some of that is uh, technological where, again, I, th I think you see China making amazing strides uh, in not only creating technology, but in commercializing it. And, um, uh, you know, the idea that they're just copycats and that sort of mm -hmm. they steal IP and things like that, that that's, really really over like that's not a that mm -hmm. is incredibly irrelevant to the discussion today and um uh so i think that again we have a sort of insanely short-sighted uh leadership right now this is absolutely the wrong team for the moment and um you know these are lost years and they're probably the critical years so don't have a lot of hope for it turning around to be really honest mm -hmm. i mean i'm learning Chinese on Duolingo. So if that helps <laughs> tell you, my plan is actually learning all the uh, other languages staying outside of China. Cause I think it will be impossible to, uh, for me to, to, uh, to that, enter that network. So I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the emerging economies that will essentially, uh, you know, China obviously will become the dominant one. Um, and I still think the United States has a lot of value into, or a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, interesting strategic resources that will become more and more important as we go uh, further and further into the future. And China actually lacks a lot of those. And there's this really great uh, Peter Zehan uh, um, speech that he gave about, about some of that. And I can link to anybody. Yeah. Wants I have to say, I, yeah, I've seen him give that speech a couple of times. Uh, yeah. I, I beg to differ, but <laughs> well, I would, I mean, I, I love, I love people to disagree with me and disagree with other people. So uh, if you, if I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a Republican, or sorry, excuse me, a, a Reagan era, you know, dream of this, um, you know, this sort of the, the way the world works. And just, I don't know, it, uh, it it makes a whole lot of sense if you sort of just forget, like, how things, I don't know, how, how the world works today. It's it's a nice nostalgic way of, of thinking that power is, you know, shaped and transferred. But um, I, I could... I could give, you know, I have definitely given some specific like looks at uh, particular slides. It's hard without <clears throat> yeah, without having him here to rebut and stuff like yeah. that. But yeah, I, uh, there were just a few like, I don't know, Scandinavia becoming the next hot zone kind of slides. I'm like, what? That's, <laughs> that seems pretty unlikely. The key thing, let me see if I can remember exactly what it was that, that led me to um, think that he have, might have a point. There was uh, essentially the sun belt. So as uh, if solar solar power does, we would, I'd love to get your opinion on mm -hmm. solar power too, but if solar power does mm -hmm. become a, a commodity, a important part of our energy nexus, then uh, mm -hmm. the United States has a lot of solar. It also has a lot of uh, natural gas. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish I wish I had that better um, better thinking about it. But let's go into mm -hmm. that. What, what do you think yeah. about about solar? 
Well, so solar is a really interesting case and actually kind of comes back to exactly what I was just talking about mm -hmm. because um, uh, so when solar really started taking off, I actually had a project with a Middle Eastern country to look at, hey, should we establish a solar you know, polysilicon manufacturing factory in our country? Because we have the you know, we have the energy resource, we have the mineral resource, we have a lot of other things and we could start cranking out solar panels. So this is going to be a, a good market. And it's really hard to imagine to, to like put yourself back in the like pre solar boom space at this, where this was happening. Um, and so our job was because there were, there's really no market. There's barely any market for solar at the time. So almost all solar panels at the time were made from the, the scrap from manufacturing chips. So it was, you know, tailings from these, mm. you know, these things. There was very little polysilicon available um, uh, and demand was rising. And so the price of that was getting really high. And so this country was looking at, okay, if we do this, like a silicon, polysilicon price is going to stay high. And we basically went through every announced, every open announced or, you know, um, planned uh, polysilicon plant in the world, um, China, Germany, every place else. And did some things like, okay, this is the volume they're announcing. This is the launch date they're announcing. This is the likelihood we think they're going to hit those two things and, and so on and so forth. And basically said, you know, the price of polysilicon is going to crash in, you know, whatever it was, March of 2006 or something like that. Um, because so much production capacity is going to come on online in China. And the in the U.S., the, the debate was all about like, oh, we shouldn't be subsidizing this, even though we obviously subsidize every other kind of energy source that we use. Uh, this isn't, you know, the market won't pay this. The, and just basically talked ourselves out of what it could have been, you know, a very useful uh, technology and threw it, threw it away for what were basically, you know, middle school arguments uh, with, uh, with each other about, you know, how, you know, socialism and environmentalism go hand in hand and that kind of stuff. So... I think we keep doing that and it's unfortunate, but that's the way the country is these days. And I don't see that changing. Mm. So with solar, you know, we um, have great deployment. We have, again, and it took somebody like Elon Musk and solar city to, you know, to really help that become mainstream. Um, and I think, you know, as, as, as much as he, he's kind of a crazy man. I'm in a lot of ways. You also have, have to give him credit for, you know, online payments, electric vehicles, solar panels, landing rocket ships backwards. Am I, and I might be forgetting something, right? He's like, he's pretty amazing. He's probably the most amazing innovator, uh, you know, in history, certainly uh, in our time. Um, if any other, you know, if Steve Jobs did one of those things, basically. So I think that we have to look for more people that, yeah, they're a little crazy and they're willing to, to do that crazy stuff. And it's funny because the name of my show is called Crazy Wisdom, so uh, and yes. that's that's what I'm looking for. But but yeah. uh, the and it's an interesting thing that I've gone to a lot, gone down a lot in the show is how can you tell whether you're got crazy wisdom or how can you tell whether you're just crazy? You're just crazy, yeah. I think um, that's what engineering does. <laughs> <laughs> engineering, science, and engineering, they'll straighten you out really fast. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to uh, to ask many times. So you, Prototype, 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 and if it's still not working, you might be crazy. Ah, you just get all right. So the answer is essentially how you you tell the difference between crazy wisdom and crazy by how much you've iterate on your um, assumptions and test them against reality. Yeah, you know, reality is like, you know, very 
clear in <laughs> what it thinks. Mm. So, yeah. But then how do, and so how does engineers, how do engineers gain that knowledge of what reality thinks? Cause it isn't, it, 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 I'll try to give an example. So, okay. Yeah. So there was a doctor who would do all of his surgeries in the 1800s before the germ theory came around and the doctor would do all of his surgeries without gloves and he would palpate the peoples and stuff like that. And, and he was essentially uh, giving them diseases, but then thought that he was curing them. Oh, I'm, I'm totally butchering this. Uh, so, yeah. but, but you, you get the idea of essentially like the, yeah. before the germ theory, this guy was actually spreading germs and then figured out. And yeah. So how can right. you tell whether you're the messages you're getting from reality are actually the right messages? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you're getting the right messages. You might not be understanding them correctly, but they're always, I guess they're always right. Um, and I think, okay. So like in a case like that, um, and it's, it's sort of the case that the, uh, these are the, the things that prove this rule, right? Is you, um, he was actually saving people. He also gave him a disease, but assuming he was a good surgeon, he was also better than the alternative, which was they just died of whatever it was they had. Um, when there are cases where we realize, oh, that thing we thought was good is actually horrifying, like the thalidomide um, birth defects mm -hmm. in the you know, yeah. 50s, things like that. We're getting better and better at detecting that early and reacting to it and, and not sort of using dogma and superstition to, to change that. I say this with the you know elephant in the room being climate and we're we're clearly still caught up in a like pre-germ theory uh, stage of of taking action on this we're still you know debating what should have been you know i think what has been obvious to a lot of people for a long time but again we still have to overcome some of that inertia so we can go back and read thomas kuhn about the structure of scientific revolutions and see how much longer this one will take and we'll still be around at the end of it um but i do i'm actually pretty hopeful that we'll 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 be able to tackle that um uh because we're we're, we're really getting serious about it now i think and <laughs> Sorry, what that sounded really wishy-washy it is <laughs> i'm not totally sure and it's kind of like i feel about china and the u.s too uh -huh. mm, i'm not sure there could yeah. be a plan b and what what are the what are the potential technology solutions to climate change? Um, you know, the, a, a lot of it is the, you know, the things like you see in the sort of the wedges where it's drawing down certain things that pollute more and replacing them with renewables. Um, it's changing some behaviors. Um, I, I think that there are, you know, car, there are good carbon sequestration um, technologies and just practices that we can also deploy. Uh, I, I think most, most people would look at this and say, it's not a technology issue. It's a political, you know, it's a, it's a matter of will um, and pol political and, and otherwise, uh, not a, a lack of knowing really what to do. Um, there was a, I'm not sure who said this, um, but I'll, so I'll just make this apocryphal quote, uh, a scientist who, let's say 20 years ago said, oh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure we can look at this climate change problem and, and have solutions within 10 years. Uh, because that's, you know, given the pace of advancement in science and innovation there, um, we should, you know, this is a, this is a reasonable thing for us to, to attack. And after a few years, I, you know, actually, I, I will never be able to solve this because it's not a scientific question. It's a political question and scientists mm -hmm. don't know how to solve those. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, back to what you were saying about the, 
the engineer, um, and even as it relates to solar, the um, technical challenges are one part of reality that you have to ask, you know, ask the universe, ask nature to give you the answers to. Um, I think we're actually really, really good at that. Uh, what we're the other part though is the the market or the political sphere. Um, that is another reality, and we have to essentially treat that as the same way we would do, you know, an experiment in a lab. You have to do experiments in the market or experiments in the citizenship, citizenry, and um, uh, we. So social science is so far behind um, physical science in this respect. I think that's where you can almost extract any story that you want from, uh, you know, from your your pilot test of your new, you know, Juicero machine and beverage, <laughs> or your your uh, your um, you know climate solving, uh, blah blah blah. Those things um, succeed on the individual level, but not on the the global level. Hmm. And then, I mean, but the question that comes to mind is, can we ever have a social sciences that isn't even remotely as accurate as we can be in the physical sciences? I mean, absolutely not ever, uh, but it can be accurate enough that um, we can make better decisions. I think the, um, again, a lot of the uh, challenge that we face right now is that we are not as clear about that um, as we are. Uh, when it comes to things that are that are not politically um, uh, challenging or you know innovative in a in a sort of a market changing sense, mm -hmm. nobody has like there's a huge debate about genetically modified organisms, right? Uh, oh, these are in our food. Does it like in Europe if it even has been uh, you know m food ingredients that are chemically identical to ones that are sourced from say a plant, but if they're made from uh, an engineered organism are labeled as, as genetically modified mm -hmm. um, or genetically engineered. There is um, no problem whatsoever with like injecting the same class of molecule into millions of humans. And we've done that for, you know, a decade or more, many decades. And that's insulin. Most of our insulin is derived from genetically modified organisms. We don't, harvest it from cadavers and other places that we used to. Mm. And it's way better. It's way safer. And nobody has a problem with that. Mm. So <laughs> it's, it's when it comes to these things that people, you know, I hate to say like poorly understand that it's not just a question of, of ignorance, um, but that's a part of it. It's also a question of like emotion and tribalism and mm. a bunch of other things that we, you know, again, we don't have the science to, uh, to fix those things right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we know it's happening. Like we know, you know, I've been reading this great book, behave by Robert Sapolsky. We know that tribalism is happening. We know that it exists in other uh, primate species and, and it's like very clearly in our, uh, you know, in our makeup, but we don't know what that means in terms of civilization that's connected together across the globe um, uh, with, you know, very quick feedback loops of, of messaging and memes and uh, imagination mm -hmm. and all these different things. And that's something we don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> to figure out pretty quickly uh, i think if if at all possible <laughs> or i mean or maybe you know like the thing i get from my study of, of 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 nature is that nature is vicious sometimes and that nature sometimes solves i, I don't want to use this problem this word problem because um 
you know, it's, I don't want to get into a fallacy, but essentially that nature is, you know, that has these periods of times where it wipes out pretty much everything. And maybe that is what happens to us. Um, hmm. Maybe, maybe yeah, that, that, that's, I think that's exactly what I mean. And it's not just, you know, um, like a, a famine or drought comes along because you didn't, you know, learn agricultural practices, you know, 500 years ago. Uh, it, when the market kicks your butt, right. Or when the political reality of the belt and road initiative kicks your butt, like it, that's, that's reality. That's mm -hmm. nature. It's just a nature on the level that we don't understand. So the, um, this is what I mean. We can't, uh, expect to ever have the same type of understanding of, of market and political systems that we do of physical systems because we are part of them and yeah. what we find out about them influences them. You know, your your the chemicals in your beaker don't change their mind because they know that you're looking at them and they don't get shy or whatever. They they answer surveys correctly every time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, but but these other systems, you know, we I think we're uh, we we're definitely falling back into like a hocus pocus, uh, uh, you know, a dark ages around this this um, you know retaliation i guess you would almost call it against authority that we've seen in a lot of different ways the last few years is a result of real corruption and malfeasance among those things you know we i don't think we can trust a lot of the institutions and organizations that that are in power and it's good to challenge them but you know we did that in the 60s too and we did that you know we, we do that every so often and uh hopefully there will be again some reality that that uh we we um evolve from in a more or less Darwinian sense. This next question might seem uh, pretty tangential, but I, I think it's connected um, and you don't have to answer it if you don't, if you're not comfortable with it, but I see a lot of technologists and engineers actually now starting to uh, use something from nature uh, that is very interesting uh, and it is starting to affect their minds in a similar way in the 1960s. And I think psychedelics, mm -hmm essentially is starting to, you know, I, I'm talking to a friend recently who is, is an engineer and a technologist and went off in, in, into the jungle and is, you know, often in, in, a, in a country in Latin America doing a lot of, a lot of ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. um, and it's mm -hmm. so interesting. What do you think the effect of so many technologists turning towards these natural substances and how is that showing up in their engineering work? Um, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know how it is showing up right now because, um, I don't know. I think that it sounds like a, uh, I do think it's a little bit overplayed right now and I have nothing, you know, morally or otherwise against, um, uh, against psychedelic or other, you know, against chemical enhancement of your mental faculties. Um, but I think right now we're in a moment where people are, it's almost like a placebo effect. People are so like into that idea that I can take a pill and I'll have superpowers that it, it's probably being a little bit overplayed. Mm. That's it. I think the fundamentals of it are, are true. And I think that um, the whole reason that there's been sort of this winter of uh, this long winter of basically having a lot of, you know, potentially useful substances um, made illegal and, and a lot of moralization and stuff going on about that really goes back to, you know, why to what was happening in the fifties and the sixties, uh, in particular in the sixties where it became a threat to, uh, the, again, to the, you know, the instruments of power, it, it became like, Hey, uh, overthrow the government, 
don't go to Vietnam, um, protest everything. Like it was, a, it was causing social upheaval and it was a threat to the social structure. And I think that if people had really viewed it as, um, if those had stayed disconnected, uh, you know, Timothy Leary and those guys hadn't sort of tried to become superstars and, mm-hmm. and change the change the youth in in ways that were maybe uh, weren't very well received by everybody. And we wouldn't be having this kind of this this period that we we've had. But I think it I think that's changing. I think that the the real data that we're getting about at least some psychedelic substances. Um, there's, you know, I think the next few years we'll see a, a lot more openness to actually understanding what's a safe dose, what's a useful dose, what does it help you do, what does it not help you do, and it'll be a lot less sort of um, a lot less hype around it than mm-hmm. it is right now. Well, that's the interesting thing because you know these substances like Timothy Leary and, and the way they took them. There's an interesting feedback loop. And some people, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know whether they do have this, but a lot of people who end up taking them say that they have an intelligence of their own, um, and that when you take them, that that mm-hmm. intelligence influences your own intelligence. And then you mm-hmm. look at somebody like Timothy Leary, who who took a lot of it, was very, very smart, went to Harvard and all these different things, and was a Harvard professor, and then and then took these, and then essentially just went off on a like a total like goose chase and. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and like the story, if you look at it on Wikipedia, it's a really, really interesting story about his interplay with the government. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, as you said, it's just kind of like a, it rose up and then it kind of collapsed and now it's coming up again, but maybe with a little bit more rationality. Mm-hmm. There's this great book called um, Psychedelic Information Theory uh, by James okay. Kent that goes into, uh, is tr- so in the same way that with cannabis, we've now isolated the endocannabinoid cannabinoid and through understanding about the, the cannabinoid we've understand the the endogenous cannabinoids that run through our body all the time um, and we needed that to understand he's trying to isolate the same thing but for the psychedelics um, and he's mm-hmm. he's found a particular receptor called the 5-HT I've got to start memorizing this one mm-hmm. I think it's 5-HT2 uh, and uh, it's one of the serotonin receptors that all of these different psychedelics act on um, and mm-hmm. the basic theory of the psychedelic information theory is that it uh, is that um, we have information coming through our senses all the time. What psychedelics do is essentially open that wide open, um, so that so that so that we are that our senses become a lot more attuned to, and particularly our visual mm-hmm. sense becomes a lot a lot more attuned yeah. to maybe you know what I don't want to say reality because it's just it's always through the perception of it's always through the doors of perception essentially, um, right? But, uh, but it's it, it's it's and so what these do is expand our information and essentially cause plasticity. Um, but then you know too much plasticity is also not a great thing because then you have things like schizophrenia or uh, or mm-hmm. a lot of other things where it's like uh, the brain is taking too much information. It's making too many too many um, connections between things that aren't connected. Uh, and yeah. so I, I find it always interesting. I don't have a, a point with this ramble that I find myself on, but but uh, I'd be curious <laughs> to hear what you what you yeah. think of that. No, I mean, I, I, I think, so when you first started out and you said, uh, like, the, the I, think, uh, I don't remember the exact phrase you used, but it sounded like, you know, the, the, the drugs have some kind of a information or, you know, communication, the, they're, bear, they're, they're bearing messages or something like that. And um, I, I'm just, in, to say I'm skeptical, I'm, I'd be really, that's, the, that's very euphemistic. There's absolutely no way that's happening. <laughs> There's no quantum channel or anything like that. Um, and I don't know of anybody 
that could convince me or it's not, I don't think that's true. And again, reality will point that out to you. Uh Um, But I do think the second part of what you're saying where it, it um, does remove filters. I mean, our brains, as we know, are constantly uh, filtering out extraneous information just so we can focus and get through the day and stuff. And you do have moments uh, they've, you know, many, many, many stories basically is of people being on drugs or having um, a, a spiritual experience where that um, uh, that sensation, which is, you know, seems completely, it's so, so hard to describe unless you talk with somebody else who's had the same thing. You're like, yes, exactly like that. Um, I, that I think absolutely does happen. And you do see connections that um, you are aware of and your brain is probably filling in some gaps, but they're, they're, you know, very plausible, um, uh, uh, connections and and correlations. And I think that that is, and it's thrilling. It feels great. And, um, uh, and I think it's, it's a, it's really what's happening. Speaking of, I think we just had an earthquake maybe. Um, Hmm. anyway, let me know if you feel it. Hmm. Um, so, and you know, I, so I've had, uh, non-drug experiences where I was just in this euphoric state and, and everything like my vision actually changed. The solid things became like ray trace. Everything was annotated with like where the metal in this car came from. And, you know, it it was a fantastic experience and it lasted about 45 minutes. And it kind of follows what William James talked about in the variety of religious experience. Um, I don't ascribe that to my like, there actually being some sort of portal that opened up for my brain. I think I just kind of lost the filter for a little while. Um, and I came up with great ideas when I'm in that state uh, that I can figure out later. I mean, they're even engineering ideas like how mm-hmm. to make a, a 5d plotter and stuff like that. So, so anyway, I, I believe the, they're very useful tools and that, you know, we should continue to figure out ways to become better innovators uh with their help or anything else that doesn't hurt us too much it can hurt us a little bit it's still okay yeah that's that's a really good point about stress because stress is sometimes good but if if you or any of the listeners want to understand more about that uh the qualia research uh, institute out of stanford is is trying to do exactly that is to try to get what is actually happening with all these things and and quantitating it um uh have you heard of them before i mean I haven't, but I did want to just like put in a plug for our neurohackers out there where I think that it's not just chemical, but also like mm. electrical or electric, mm. electronically modulated stimulation that um, is a really promising area. I, again, it's a little bit overhyped right now. There's a little mm. bit too much uh, hand wavy woo going on, but <laughs> but the potential is interesting enough to pursue. Cool. And I, I want to go back to something you said, which is really interesting, which is that you, you and, I, and I, I don't really believe it either way, but I want to understand the thinking behind it, which is that you, you mentioned that nobody can convince you that there is an intelligence, and, and please correct me if I'm giving a misattribution, mm-hmm. nobody can convince you that there is an intelligence inside of the plants uh, outside of human intelligence. Uh, so uh, does that mean that you don't believe that there is any sort of intelligence outside of a human intelligence? No, I mean, and maybe I should qualify that a little bit because what, you know, it's like you said, what is innovation? Well, what is intelligence? Hmm. Um, so, so I basically, I don't think that, for example, there's a sort of a, a cosmic spiritual, you know, hard drive stored in plant leaves that when you eat it, like you get that information. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, um, if you 
look at more like what is swarm intelligence? Like how do ants, which are individually stupid, still come up mm-hmm. with amazing structures and behaviors that in that sense where, you know, you, you and your best friend will have a dialogue about something that neither of you could have come up with on your own. That's a group intelligence, but it's no, but I guess what I'm saying is I'm not, there's uh, nothing mystical not, about it. Nothing mystical about it. But now again, I'll be, I want to be humble that a lot of our science has come from taking something that sounds like that's impossible, that doesn't exist, that whatever, that's what I started out saying. And then we figure out how it is, mm. but we don't go away from scientific principles of, again, reality tells you that it's not that you really want to believe it and you sort mm. of talk yourself into it, which 99.9% of the time is what we get <laughs> with a lot of this like Esalen, you know, that stuff. It's, it's just, it's, it's just an oversimplification. It's great if it makes you feel better about what you did this weekend, but like, it doesn't mean that you, I don't know. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're correct. It has no uh, meaning beyond the experience itself or maybe the meaning uh, that we ascribe to it. Yeah. And you know, to be honest, it's a little bit disappointing sometimes when people do try and Mm. sort of, resort to pseudoscience as a way to justify something that meant a lot to them. It's like, it's fine. It just meant a lot to you, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to like go, you don't have to like essentially start lying to yourself and others Mm -hmm. (laughs) about the veracity of that experience. It's an amazing experience. Just don't, you just don't need to use like quantum mechanics to explain what happened because you don't know anything about quantum mechanics. (laughs) And that, and that's so interesting. And you mentioned that it's, we do it to ourselves, but then we also create stories that we then tell other people uh, and then we all, and, and some might say, create religions out of those, out of those stories that we, yeah. that we, that we share. Totally. Yeah. Cause if you have a religion, you get followers and followers are fun. Uh, they do what you tell them. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah, how, I would love to hear your opinion on um, uh, science versus scientism, like people believing because like science seems to be the work without belief. But then scientism essentially is this, is this thing that we, we ascribe. So people get into really, really intense arguments on the internet. I've seen that about what science says, um, uh, but, then, mm. but then attach a lot of emotion to it. And they'll be like, I'm right. This is, this is you. Like, mm. but, but I, and I feel like that is the opposite of what, what a good mm. scientist would be like, well, I actually don't know. Let's, let's, what does the evidence yeah. say? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, you're, you are, you're, yeah, you're totally right about that. It, just as much as, non-scientists will sort of like fake some science talk about something that is not a scientific question. You see a lot of scientists essentially wading into things that have nothing to do with science and don't, um, uh, they don't have any authority to talk about. Mm. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning where there's this continuum of, you know, physics and chemistry where, you can do an experiment pretty much and figure out what is going on there. You might disagree, but you're not, you're not emotionally, sort of invested in mm. what the molecules think. Then you get into things like biology, and this is where we have a lot of controversy because anything that's alive or that you can eat or that's part of nature, like we, we do have non, uh, so non-scientific values around those things, right? But we also have a lot of science that's not as solid as it is in you know, sort of down the, the, the hierarchy of scale we don't really understand how ecological systems work. We don't understand how one cell actually works. Mm. Um, But that's not to say that you throw all of it out, but you know, the whole reason we have to do all these experiments with, 
you know, when you're testing drugs or when you're looking at the impact of a pesticide or anything like that is because biology is a really, really noisy environment. Mm -hmm. And you have to do it again and again and again until you can separate noise from signal. Um, and so then when you get into things that are even higher level on this, this sort of you know, the great chain of being than, than biological systems, you get into social systems. Like even just food is a social biological system. And we have like, you shouldn't call it food science. There is no food science. I, no, no, that was a little drastic. There is some food science, but all the whole reason we keep going from like, never eat fat to, oh, you should only eat fat to, you know, all these things is because um, we just don't know. And we didn't even know if vitamins are good for you. We think they are, but like you can't, you can't find a lot of studies where these people took a multivitamin and these people didn't. And the people who took it lived forever and the people who didn't died right away. There's, there's just not a lot of evidence for a lot of the things that we take as dogma. And then you get into, you know, if you get into climate, you get into um, education. Like there's this you know, social science about what's the best way to learn and teach. That's, that's a complete free for all. <laughs> as with many things are, but we as human beings have this tendency to, as again, go back to the religion, like create a religion out of it. And what is a mini religion? It's like certainty. It's like, Oh, I know that. That's why that is. I know, I know how to teach kids. Like, cause I have this. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, yeah, exactly. We, we want to believe that there's some, some reason. And sometimes we don't, we, we think that that's unweaving the rainbow. Um, but it, you know, again, my, my point is that we can't just throw out, just ignore all the science and do whatever we want. But we mm. can't also just follow that and hope it's going to be right. Um, and I think this is our, this is our big challenge. Again, going back to what is innovation is it's, it's not just solving the technical problem. It's solving the, you know, all the other aspects of reality that this thing has to deal with. If it's a business model innovation or if it's, you know, a new coding for aircraft wings that makes them you know easier to de-ice they're, they're both, they both have a market reality they need to fit into. Hmm. That's really interesting. So why is it that why you said it was just a messy environment for biology and that we don't actually know this, what a cell works and we don't have food science. Why is it so hard to figure out exactly what's happening once we eat something or once we take something? Mm. Why is it so mm. hard? So there's a really, really basic reason. And that is, uh, so in, if you, uh, so in, in math, we would call this, uh, Think of like rows and columns in a, a table. Like if you have a whole lot of rows, in other words, a whole lot of examples of something, let's say height and weight, um, you would see a correlation because you have you know uh, a lot of data points that show just two variables, mm. and you could easily understand like uh, you know what the, uh, the that there's a a relationship between those two things. But then you add in something like gender. Okay, so now you've got, oh, okay, well, there's actually two kinds of people going on. All right, so now you have three variables, same list of, of mm -hmm. examples, and we've just found out that reality is more complicated than we expected. Well, now, now that beyond just height, weight, and gender, you're going to add, what time did you get up this morning? Did your father have diabetes? Mm -hmm. um, did you go for a run or did you not? How many times did you go for a run? What was your heart rate? Like, and you start having more variables. You have such a high number of variables, even compared to the high number of people on the planet, um, that you can find all kinds of spurious correlations. And, um, and this goes for, you know, almost any complex science. So I think uh, we're getting, you know, we're, you know, with artificial intelligence, with more accurate and, and more um, low cost, like easier to use sensors, we're getting a lot more data and a lot more ability to crunch that data. And that's what's allowing us to tackle new diseases um, that we didn't really understand very much before. I think you do see this a little bit in 
um, like in some psych, you know, PTSD and, and depression and things like that. Uh, 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 the autism spectrum. These are all things that we had really, really, um, uh, let's say, qualitative understandings of in the past, and I think we're having more and more quantitative understanding, and that's really helpful. Hmm. Interesting. And and how much does artificial intelligence play into that? Are are we actually able to peer get more important? or more signal out of these data sets using the computers? Does the computer do that better than us? Oh yeah, way better. I mean, definitely would be impossible for us as, as humans to do. Mm. And so how, how is that showing up? Like particularly maybe you can even shout out to companies, like what are the most interesting companies mm -hmm. that are applying this computation in order to suss out what exactly is happening as we do these therapeutic things? Mm. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I would point out specific companies, um, but I would maybe look at more fields and disciplines because I think the most interesting ones actually cross those. There's, there, to be honest, I don't think there's been, I mean, there's a lot of sort of marketing hype around, mm. um, you know, so-and-so's artificial intelligence-based doctor diagnosed, blah, blah, blah. But those are, um, I, I'm more interested in the things that are, uh, still at the like academic and mm. yeah, that level. So. Interesting. So yeah, what are some Google search terms I can use? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Google search terms. Um, so there's uh, uh, so bi bioinformatics, really broadly speaking, is the the area where we're looking at the intersection of, of biological systems and data, and um, the the some of the, so like I mentioned some more psychological or, or uh, um, what we have viewed as mental uh, mental diseases or mental states so again like depression and PTSD and autism um, those are interesting because we still don't have a very good way to measure those symptoms you can say oh I feel depressed or I think a lot about suicide mm -hmm. or I rock when I you know I don't make eye contact those are all um, symptoms but but it's not like your blood count of blah, blah, blah is, you know, 547. Um, so the, um, so in psychology, I think that it's, it's still kind of early days. Uh, but, but the fact that we're able to sort of, again, put, um, uh, put these, uh, put a, a larger number of, of data points into an algorithm is, is good and hopeful and, and, you know, could maybe lead to some real change in how we think about some of these diseases. But I'm, I'm a lot more aware of and interested in things that are happening on like the, the level of, of biochemistry. So DNA and genes and cells and how those, uh, like how you can basically increase the yield, the production of a certain, um, uh, let's say a certain plastic precursor using uh, bacteria and, you know, what increase can you get and how do you do that? That's all becoming a little bit more predictive. So synthetic biology, is that, would that be under that? Yeah, exactly. Synthetic yeah. biology. What's the, so you take, you take DNA and it, I, I assume it's like, is it in a Petri dish or something like that? And then you grow something using the DNA uh, to, uh, based on what I just said, I'm sure I butchered it, but can you correct mm -hmm. me in my model of, of how that works? Yeah, no, I mean, I would think of a PH as more like a server farm. Mm. And so you're writing the software uh, 
and let me think if I can do the analogy here. So let you, you, there's lots of ways of writing this software and software is a, a metaphor. Mm. Um, uh, I think a lot of synthetic biology kind of started with that idea that there's an analogy or, a, you know, some strong relationship between how genes work and how software's, software works and that you can apply software engineering principles like modularity and interoperability and, mm. um, and things like that to create, um, uh, to, to engineer biological systems, to forward engineer them the way that we, you know, create software. Uh, so there are actually DNA libraries that work very much like software libraries that you can that you can use. So you put together your organism, um, and there the the specific techniques around that is maybe out, outside of the scope of of this conversation. But generally, you are you're trying to create um, a not just one. Uh, you're not going to create just one specific uh, organism that follows the program that you designed. Um, you're going to have a lot of variations on that because you don't know in advance exactly how they're going to perform. But it's also kind of like software. If you wrote, let's say, the same program 50 times with a little tweak in each one, you can see which one performed best. And that then, that organism, you move into the Petri dish and you get that one to grow and be happy. And that's your server farm. I, don't hmm. know if I totally Whoa. butchered the analogy at all there, but that's, that's kind of how. That's really cool. And so is there anything like a software bootcamp right now? If somebody wanted to enter into that field of synthetic biology, what would they, what would their best bet in order to do that? Is it only through um, normal academic channels of, of going through uh, biochemistry or, or that type of stuff? No, not at all. Um, there's actually, uh, there is actually a really good way if you are in, in school and you wanted to, um, to kind of go that route. So it's called the iGEM competition, which stands for the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. And that's been going on for, I want to say about 12 years or something, for, for quite a while. And is thousands of participants from all over the world. And they, you know, they are basically young, young scientists in training. Um, and they, uh, yeah, just a really interesting program. It's all like first robotics, but for biotech. Um, uh, there are actually uh, high school and even middle school um, experiments that, you know, they like just say transferring the, the, uh, the gene that makes um, fireflies light up, or, uh, putting that into bacteria and getting glowing jellyfish. That's a middle school mm. science experiment these days. Um, and so if you want to just play around with it, you can just go to a, you know, science supply teacher supply store and do that. Um, there's also, uh, an organization, several actually organizations here in the Bay area anyway, um, called, uh, that are like biohacking spaces. So there's DIY bio, there's uh, counterculture labs in Oakland. Uh, there's a, a organization called Odin, O D I N, uh, that, basically uh, will sell you kits for doing uh, these types of things and instructions. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's the, it, and that's just the Bay area. There's actually a lot of these all around the world, but, um, uh, but uh, maybe I can send you some links and you put them on your site or something like that for people yeah. to follow up. But yeah, so you don't need to be um, in a science program to, uh, to get going. That said, I think your chances of actually succeeding in doing those things without at least, you know, like, um, high school level biochemistry or something are, are pretty small because it's, it's like if you sat down in front of a computer and somebody said, here, write an app, you, you mm -hmm. wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. It take, take years of, of, of fooling around. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, you can still teach yourself, but you got to expect that. I mean, it's, 
you you know you are playing God after all. So you need a little bit of <laughs> yeah. a bit of uh, instruction and and humility probably. Yeah, yeah, you'll get humble real quick because <laughs> <laughs> your petri dish will be dead and you'll yeah. not know why, and somebody will have to help explain that you did something really dumb wrong. So you'll get humble too. Interesting. Okay, so for the last question, the last five minutes, what is the most important thing that you've learned about either DNA, RNA, or um, how information is used by life? Oh, that's a fantastic question. That actually goes back to what you asked me before about intelligence. And so, um, you know, I said, I don't think that there's intelligence in the plant. Um, hmm. It's not like a, a, a disk grab of information, but on a really low level, like the sort of machine code level, it is. You know, so the things that we find in plants, sometimes through ingesting them, but sometimes through uh, understanding how they work and engineering with them, um, actually, there is a lot of information. So biology has been, you know, testing itself, its own reality for billions of years and um, has a, a lot of information if we can read that, you know, that sort of archaic script. So, um, uh, again, in, in the sense of like, if you look at uh, intelligence with a really big eye then and no pun intended there but uh you you actually can learn you know more than all of us have ever learned combined mm. and so what are some some search terms that uh, people could use to throw in and to understand that that like because if i just type in dna rna yeah um I right. yeah get well that. so if you want to if you're starting at that level i would search for lac operon l-a-c-o-p-e-r-o-n um, and that is kind of the first biochemical circuit that we discovered. We kind mm. of understood how uh, a cell can react to its environment um, and in an intelligent way uh, that is pretty much identical to a cybernetic loop in more digital stuff and mm. uh, lack operon. And I think anybody, you know, you don't have to be a biochemist to get what's going on when you read that and uh, your mind will be properly blown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to doing that right after we get off the phone. Um, well, cool. Uh, thank you so much. This has been amazing. How can people find out more about you or, or the, the stuff you're doing? Um, hmm. uh, so I've got a website that I'll need to update right after we get <laughs> hang up here <laughs> um, called, called Marsbound. So as in not a moonshot, but going to Mars, marsbound.com. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Good talking with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mark. Uh, please reach out on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, and DM me. That My DMs are open if you have anything you'd like to share about this episode or any of the other episodes I'm doing. And also, please find us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher uh, and go ahead and leave a review if you found this to be of value. Uh, and I am releasing episodes every day, Monday through Friday, and I'll try to keep that up during the holiday season, although probably next week I won't be won't be doing that. Um, but I will be trying as long as I'm in Columbia to be releasing Monday through Friday, um, until I've run out of English episodes to publish. And then I'm going to start doing Spanish, French, and Portuguese interviews. Uh, and I've been having Spanish lessons down here in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, and I've been reviewing my podcast episodes with a Spanish teacher and going through them line by line and figuring out how I'm, uh, making mistakes and improving. Uh, and it's actually really fun and I'm learning a lot and I'm probably going to start doing that with French and Portuguese as well, because finding out that you can do really cheap online lessons, um, in French, Spanish, and Portuguese. So that's really cool. Uh, and hope you guys have a great day. Let me know what you think.